We turn for our scripture reading this morning to Galatians chapter 5. We read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a follow-up to Lord's Day 23 and continues to teach us about justification. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith, which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you, that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you, through the Lord, that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. 
Thus far we read God's holy word. We consider together the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 24. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal or the judgment seat of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been taught by the Catechism in the previous Lord's Day that the prophet of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is that I am righteous before God. We saw that God imputes to me the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith, so that it is just as if I never sinned, and it is just as if I accomplished all that obedience which Christ accomplished for me. I am justified by faith, But when I say that, the Catechism taught us, I don't mean that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, as if my faith makes me acceptable to God, because only the righteousness of Christ makes me acceptable to God. But when I say that I am justified by faith alone, what I mean is I can only receive and apply to myself the righteousness of Christ by faith and in no other way. But now the Catechism continues the discussion in Lord's Day 24 by asking us, why? Why is this so? Why is it so that I am and can only be justified by faith? Why is it so that I can only be justified in Christ? Why cannot my good works be either the whole or at least a part, however small of a part, of my righteousness before God? That's the question that we face together this morning. And in regard to this question and in regard to this subject, I want to remind us this morning that there are always two ditches, one on this side and one on that side, of the straight and narrow path of the truth of the gospel. 
And this is a good opportunity for us to be warned against those two ditches. We must avoid them with all of our heart. On the one side of the straight and narrow path is the deep ditch of legalism, or if you will, works righteousness. It is the thought that I can be righteous before God, whether in whole or in part, by doing the works of the law myself. If we give in to the thought of legalism and works righteousness, then we become, to use the words of the chapter we read, entangled again in a yoke of bondage. We become slaves to the law. We seek righteousness from the law, but we fail and we come under the curse of the law. On the other side of the straight and narrow path is the ditch of antinomianism. That is the thought that since I am righteous in Christ alone, therefore I do not have to do the works of the law. I do not have to obey God's law. I do not have to serve God. I do not have to do good works. And that slippery slope leads deep down into the ditch of carnal security, of carnal and ungodly attitudes and behaviors with little zeal and little interest and little energy for doing good works. The straight and narrow path leads between those two ditches. It's a straight path. It's a narrow path. But it's a path that can easily be slipped off to the right or to the left. And even we are prone to slip to the right and to the left. So we enter this subject this morning with the prayer that God will guide our feet, our hearts, and keep us on the straight and narrow path that we do not fall into either ditch. Let's consider the relation between justification and good works. Notice that we are justified without our works. Secondly, we bear fruits of thankfulness. And thirdly, we are rewarded of mere grace. The question the Catechism puts before us this morning is, why cannot our good works be the whole or at least a part of our righteousness before God? The question of the Catechism already teaches us the truth that we are not justified by our works. We are not justified in any part by our works. Not in the present, not in the past, not in the future, not at any time are we or can we be righteous before God by doing the works of the law. God does not and God will not justify a sinner like you and me because of the good works that we have done. He will not justify us. He will not accept us. He will not approve us. He will not give us entrance into his everlasting kingdom on the basis of, on the ground of, the good works that we have done, or even, for that matter, because of the faith that is in our hearts. He will not justify us because of anything that we have or anything that we have done or that we might do. No matter how many good works we have done, no matter how great those good works might be. Even if we would devote our entire life to missionary service in foreign nations, preaching the gospel to heathen people who have never heard it before, translating the scriptures, a hard, painstaking task from native languages 
into, uh, from the English or from the original languages into native languages and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Even if we as fathers and mothers are faithful day in and day out, serving our children, serving our families, loving them selflessly, giving ourselves, giving, giving, and more giving. Even if we as husbands and wives devote ourselves to each other, forgive each other, apologize to each other, and are striving to do what is good and right in our marriages. Even if we spend countless hours of our lives caring for the poor and the sick and the widows and the orphans, even if we give away thousands, even millions of dollars for the causes of God's kingdom, for the upbuilding of the church, for missions, for Christian schools, for the poor, none of those good works can earn us even the tiniest fraction of our righteousness before God. They cannot be the whole or part of that righteousness which gives entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Christ alone is our righteousness before God. Because Christ alone has performed that perfect obedience that God requires for one to be righteous before him. To use the words of the Catechism in this Lord's Day, Christ alone has a righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God. A righteousness which is absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. Christ alone has performed good works that are perfect and undefiled with even the tiniest spot of sin. Christ is the only righteous one in all of the history of the world among mankind. And Christ, through his perfect obedience, was led to the cross. And there on the cross, he took upon himself our sins, guilt, and misery, and suffered the curse and the punishment that we deserved. So that in his righteousness, he was led to the cross, and he went through the cross, shedding his blood for us on that cross. So that there is in Christ alone a perfect righteousness before God in all respects conformable to his law and justice. Christ alone is the solid rock on which I can stand for time and eternity to be approved before the tribunal of God. But why? Why cannot, the Catechism asks, why cannot our good works be the whole or even a tiny part of our righteousness before God. Why can't it be that Christ is part, even a big part, even the most massive part of our righteousness, but why can't there even be a tiny part that we contribute to our righteousness before God? The Catechism gives a twofold answer to that. In the first place, it's because the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. Notice what Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, 
that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith, which shows itself by love. It's either Christ or the law. It's one or the other. It can't be Christ and the law. It's either Christ or the law. And if you're going to go the route of the law, the apostle says, make no mistake about it, you who are circumcised. Those of you who have been circumcised according to the law and who trust in your circumcision, that God will justify you because you're circumcised. Make no mistake. You're not done yet. You have to do the whole law. You have to obey the entirety of God's law. We might put it in these terms to us. You who have been baptized in the Christian church, do not make any mistake about it that if you trust in your baptism, if you think that God will justify you just because you're baptized, just because you're a member in this church, then make no mistake, you're not finished yet. You have to do the whole of God's law, and you have to do it perfectly. You have to keep every jot and every tittle of every law, every precept, every statute, in all of the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that God gave to Moses. You have to avoid all of the sinful things, robbery, murder, adultery, fornication, both in the act and in the desires and in the thoughts and in the imaginations and fantasies. And you must do all the good things required in the law. Have you kept every Sabbath day holy? Every single one? Have you kept it perfectly holy? Have you honored all those in authority over you? Your father? your mother, your teachers, your grandparents? Have you honored those in authority over you in the church, in the state? Have you honored them, not just obeyed them, but honored them, given to them with your words and your thoughts, the honor that is due unto them for their position? And you must do that out of faith. You must obey all these commandments out of faith because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if you only obey those commandments externally, you still haven't done enough. You have to obey them from the heart. That obedience has to arise out of faith. Perfect faith. Unwavering faith. A faith that works by love. A faith that produces love. Pure love. Wholehearted devotion to God with your heart and mind and soul and a love for your neighbor that's as great as the love you have for yourself. It has to be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law, that first. And then secondly, the Catechism says, our good works cannot be the whole or a tiny part of our righteousness because even our best works are imperfect and defiled with sin. The Apostle reminds the Galatians in verse 17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things 
that ye would. We Christians do perform good works. We can perform good works, and we do perform good works, because the Spirit of Christ dwells in our hearts, and the Spirit of Christ moves us, changes us, converts us, humbles us, so that the fruits of the Spirit appear in our lives. But at the very same time, we still have the flesh in us. And that flesh is constantly lusting against the Spirit, constantly warring against the Spirit. And that flesh is so powerful that often we cannot do the things that we would, Paul says. That flesh is often so powerful that we can't carry out the godly impulses that the Spirit works in us. We can't love our wife as we intended to do. We can't love our neighbor as it was our resolution to do. We can't do it because of our flesh. But then sometimes we do. We do produce good works. But even when we do, the flesh so works upon those works that he renders them imperfect and defiled with sin. A good work begins in the regenerated heart as the Spirit moves us and that good work rises up from the heart and it's going to come out of the mouth and out of the hands and out of the feet in various activities. But as that work is in process of development, the flesh is there corrupting it, defiling it, rendering it imperfect, soiling it with selfish motives, proud motives. The work might begin with a good motive. I want to show love to someone. It's a true, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. That's how it begins. But then as that thought and that planning develops, the flesh works upon it so that we start to look for something in it for ourselves. What will I get out of it? And it becomes tainted sometimes ever so slightly that we can hardly detect it. It's almost under the threshold of our consciousness, but it becomes defiled with selfishness. It becomes corrupted with pride. That's no longer perfect. Sometimes, too, the flesh so works upon us that we have a good motivation, a good intention, but we become sluggish about the carrying out of that good work. We're sluggish and lazy and lethargic, or we have a lackadaisical attitude about it. We're not wholeheartedly into it. It's all the work of the flesh. And in so many other ways, which means that we don't even have one single good work that we've ever performed that was perfect. The many good works that we perform, none of them are perfect. What you might say what you might call the better works that we've performed, they're not perfect. And if you could choose the very best of all the good works, or if someone would point out to you the best of all the good works you've ever performed, that one's not perfect either. We don't have any perfect good works. And even if we did, even if we had one, Even that one perfect good work could not be the whole or part of our righteousness before God because God simply requires absolutely and completely perfect righteousness. 
Therefore, we must cling to Christ. The Catechism is simply driving us back to Christ. It is simply reminding us that we can't do it. We need Christ as our righteousness. And so as the Apostle exhorts the Galatians, I exhort you and myself, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That is, let us not slide off the straight and narrow path into the ditch of legalism. And let us not think that that's just a Roman Catholic thing. Or that's just a, an Arminian thing. That we don't believe that. We don't think like that. We all have a Pharisee in our flesh. We all have a legalist inside of us. We all have pride. And we all have the temptation to contribute ever so little, even if it's ever so little, to our righteousness so that we can boast in that. We can boast in what we contributed. Let us not slide, beloved, into that ditch which is such a temptation to us. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Even a little bit of that thought creeping into our souls. That maybe there's at least something that I can contribute to my righteousness. That little thought is like a little dose of, of yeast placed into the dough. It will spread through the whole lump until the whole lump is leavened and you are a thorough Pharisee trusting in yourself alone for your righteousness before God. Let us cling to Jesus as our only righteousness. We who cling to Christ by faith we receive from God the gift of his free righteousness. We are justified by faith without the works of the law. And it is impossible for us that we should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Those who have been justified by faith as a completely free gift of God inevitably produce the fruits of thankfulness. The Catechism asks, But doth not this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without our works, make men careless and profane? Doesn't this doctrine that God does it all, God gives us the whole of our righteousness through Christ, doesn't that make men spiritually lazy, and ungodly. That is the contention of many. That is the contention of those who believe that our righteousness does come partly from us. They point the finger at this doctrine of justification by faith alone, and they contend that if you teach that, then people will be careless and profane. They would say that to me as your preacher this morning. By preaching that to those people, you're going to make them careless and profane. If you teach them that they are justified, righteous, approved and accepted by God for time and eternity, holy of God's grace, by faith alone, 
then they will lose all motivation to live a godly life. They will lose all motivation. And they will start to feel free to live however they please. They will start to think, well, I don't have to keep the works of the law to be saved, to be justified, to go to heaven. Therefore, I don't need to keep the works of the law. This contention says that people are only truly motivated to be busy, diligent, and zealous in avoiding evil and doing good if they have in their hearts the fear of damnation if they do evil and the hope of righteousness if they do good. You have to give that to them. You have to fill their hearts with the fear of damnation if they do evil and the hope of righteousness if they do good. Otherwise, they won't do it. That's the claim. You have to frighten people into doing good and avoiding evil. You have to frighten them by saying, if you don't stop doing those sins, you're going to go to hell and you're going to perish for all eternity. So stop it. And if you don't tell them, if you want righteousness, then you have to do these good works. And they will lose all motivation. People need to know that they're going to be rewarded for their hard work. People need to know when they go to work, they're going to get a paycheck. People need to know that when they show love to someone, they're going to be loved back. People need to know that they're going to get something for what they give. That's the claim. Is that true? Is it true that if I preach to you this morning that God promises to save you freely and graciously without any of your works contributing a single thing that you're going to go out of this church and think to yourself, well, then I can live however I want. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how I live. No, it's not true. It is true that there are people who claim to be Christians who are careless and profane. That is true. There are people in Christian churches all across the land and all across the world. They sit there in the pew. They come to church. They profess to be Christians. But in their daily and personal lives, they're careless and they're profane. They're careless in their behavior, careless in their words, careless in their actions, profane, taking God's name in vain. And they don't strive to live godly. But it's not true that the doctrine of the gospel is at fault for that carelessness and profanity. No one may point to the doctrine and say, it's the doctrine's fault. That doctrine made them careless and profane. Rather, one must point to the person and say, he made himself careless and profane. He's at fault for his own carelessness and profanity. Because he has allowed the hellish lie of antinomianism to creep into his heart and soul. That's what you have to say. And those who allow the hellish lie of antinomianism to creep into their heart must hear the rebuke of the apostle and the warning of the apostle in the passage we, led, we read. 
when he lists the works of the flesh and he says, as I told you before in time past, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it is not true that the doctrine of gracious and free justification makes true believers careless and profane. Are you thankful, beloved, for the free salvation that God gives to you in Jesus Christ? Are you glad about that? Are you filled with joy about that? Are you amazed at that? The thought that God justified me, an ungodly sinner, after all that I have done in my life, all my failures, all of my weaknesses, all of my sins and lusts, that God nevertheless freely justifies me, freely imputes to me the alien righteousness of Christ, so that it's just as if I never sinned, And it's just as if I was perfect in my life. God does that for free. Does that thought not fill you with thankfulness? With gladness and gratitude? That God takes you, a dirty, filthy sinner, and washes away all that filth and clothes you in the white robes of Jesus' righteousness. And cleanses you in the blood of his Son. Does that not give you the desire to worship him, to serve him, to love him throughout the whole of your life, to keep his commandments, to abound in good works, to be better and better and better in your life? Some people who know this doctrine of free justification, some children of God will devote their whole life to missionary service. They're so moved by it. God uses the gospel in their life so that they devote their whole life to the preaching of the gospel in other lands, to the translation of the scriptures into other tongues, to suffering for the gospel's sake, going into dark, pagan, dangerous places to bring the gospel. They're so moved by the gospel, and they're so comforted by it. Some people are willing to bring children into this world and as Christian fathers and mothers to devote themselves day after day, hour after hour, in the day, in the night, to the care of those children. Not just because there's some natural love, but because they have a spiritual love for those children as the children of God, and they want to raise them up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Some people are so moved by the gospel that in their marriages they fight to keep their marriages strong. They put forth every effort to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to apologize, to forgive, to grow in their relationship with each other. They're moved by gratitude. Some people are so moved that they devote their precious time to the care of the poor, the care of the widow, the orphan, the sick. Those are good works. Why do people do those good works? Why do people give their precious, hard-earned money into the collection plate? Not just a few pennies, but large amounts. Giving to the poor, giving to the schools, giving to the causes of missions, 
and giving to other kingdom causes. Why do people do that? Out of thankfulness to the Lord for a free salvation. How can we be careless and profane? How can we be sluggish and lackadaisical? How can we not be zealous of good works when we have and know such a great Savior? When we have received such a great gift? How can we not desire to be better? How can we be satisfied with status quo? How can we be at ease in our sin when we know such a great salvation? It is impossible for those who are truly implanted into Jesus Christ, the living vine, that they should not bear fruits of thankfulness. That's impossible. You see, the real motivation to do good works is not that if I do these good works, I will get righteousness from God. But the more powerful motivation that flows out of faith is that I want to do these good works because I've already received righteousness from God. Fully and freely. Therefore, beloved, let us beware of the ditch on the other side. We're always tempted to fall into the one ditch of legalism. I can contribute to my righteousness. But we're just as tempted to fall into the ditch of antinomianism. Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh. But by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Don't be lawless, he says. Don't be antinomians. Let us not think that antinomianism is just the false doctrinal error of a few radicals. Just as we must not think that legalism is just a false doctrine of those Roman Catholics and Arminians way out there, so also we must not think that antinomianism is just the fault of a few radicals in here, or maybe not in here anymore. No, we too can fall into that ditch. And we're tempted to fall into it all the time. What is the evidence of falling into the ditch of antinomianism? It's this. Whenever we feel at ease in our sins. Whenever we feel comfortable in our sins. We're comfortable with them. We don't hate them. We don't strive against them. We don't feel any need to fight against them. To eradicate them. To pull out our right eye that offends us and to hack off our right hand that offends us. We're just content to go on in our sins. That's antinomianism. Especially when we reason within ourselves, it's okay because I'm justified in Christ. It's okay because I have liberty in Christ. When we reason that way, we're an antinomian. We're an antinomian sliding down into the ditch when we feel at ease in our selfish, self-serving lifestyle and we feel no zeal to do good works. We feel no zeal to press beyond the boundaries of our comfort zone, 
to do good to the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan. When we cling to our money, to ourselves, and we don't give it as we ought. When we are not willing ever to go out of our way to do good works. That's a sign. Especially if we think that it's okay because we're justified in Christ. That's an evidence of antinomianism. Remember, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We must not allow even a little bit of that thought to have any place in our heart. As soon as it's there, we must pray for the Spirit to destroy it. We're not meant to be at ease in our sins, beloved, ever. We're not meant in this life ever to be comfortable as if we have reached the plateau of holiness and we have no more growth that needs to be done. That's antinomianism. Antinomianism is the thought that I don't have to strive, I don't have to press, I don't have to endeavor. And when there is an antinomian spirit in a church, then the minister refuses to call the congregation to that growth. The minister refuses to exhort the congregation to that growth, to demand spiritual growth in thankfulness and good works. The Apostle Paul was no legalist and he was no antinomian. He insisted that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he also insisted that we abound more and more in good works of thankfulness. Finally, we note that God will reward our good works in this life and in a future life. But this reward is not of merit, but of grace. The Catechism asks in question 63, what, do not our good works merit? The questioner is almost surprised. The questioner is dismayed. What? You're saying that our good works don't merit anything, which God will reward in this life and in a future life? And you notice the Catechism doesn't deny that there's a reward. This reward, there is a reward. This reward, but what about that reward? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. Some people believe that our good works merit a reward. Again, not just those who hold that as official doctrine of their church, but that can also sneak into our souls too. The thought that our good works deserve something. We deserve something for those good works. Our good works are worthy of a reward. Those who think this do not believe anyone would do a good work if there was no promise that he would get a reward for it. But that's not true. Our good works don't merit anything from God. What is a good work? We're going to find out later a good work is one that arises out of faith, is done according to the law of God and for the glory of God. But if you notice in all of those things, a good work is simply doing what God wants us to do. 
We're not rising above so that we have earned something extra. We can't merit anything with God. Not even Adam could merit with God. In the Garden of Eden, when he was still perfectly righteous and he was doing good and only good every day, he wasn't meriting anything. He was just maintaining what God had given him. We can't merit by anything that we do. When we do what God commands us in his law and we actually love each other, then we're just doing our duty. There was only one person in all of history who could merit with God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason is, he's not just a man. We mere humans cannot merit with God. But Jesus is God come into human flesh and doing what he didn't have to do and therefore rising above the requirements of God's law because he not only obeyed the law for himself, but he obeyed the law for us. He didn't have to do that. And he didn't suffer on the cross for his own sins, but he suffered for our sins. He didn't have to do that. And therefore, by his obedience, he merited all of that righteousness, all of that salvation, and all of that reward for us. So when God promises to reward our good works in his amazing grace, it is only by grace. He's not promising to reward us because we merited it or earned it or deserve it or are worthy of it. promising to reward us in his grace. After all, we couldn't do a single good work unless the Spirit was in us producing that fruit. Every single good work that we do is Spirit-moved, Spirit-empowered. And then secondly, as we already said, even the best of those works, we defile it. We defile it. It's not worthy of a reward. And yet, God says, I will reward it. I will reward it anyway. I will reward it in my grace. I will reward you with a white robe when you come into glory. And I will wrap that white robe around you to wear for all eternity. And I will place upon your head a crown of victory, a crown of glory and life that you didn't earn. I will work in you to run the race that is set before you all your life long until you cross the finish line and then I will reward you. And I will give you a white stone with a new name written in it which no one knows except yourself. I will give to you a special and unique place in the kingdom of heaven. It will be yours and only yours. Your special, unique reward that you didn't earn. So we see, beloved, every motivation to do good works and we see the great comfort of the gospel. That God gives everything to us that we need for justification and for sanctification. For salvation, eternal life, and the reward. So be thankful. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful for such a great and unspeakable gift 
We pray, Lord, that thou would cause the words of the gospel to sink into our souls, truly deep in our souls, that we receive the comfort and that we also receive the zeal to go forth with a thankful and grateful heart, seeking to abound in good works, seeking to please thee, our God and Father. And we thank thee for the promise of a gracious reward. In Christ's name we pray.